Welcome back to the Foreign Policy Provcast. My name is Mark Melton. I am the deputy editor here at Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. Today, we are having the second part of a two-part series with Rebecca Heinrichs. The conversation was really good about different things with nuclear policy. And we didn't want to uh, have too long of a podcast and we also didn't want to cut too many things out. So today we will be speaking with her about some different issues like missile defense, why we need nuclear weapons, the idea of going to a global zero environment or in other words, an environment where there are no nuclear weapons and also how the just war theory applies to MAD. Rebecca Heinrichs is a fellow at the Hudson Institute, and she deals with different national security issues, including nuclear policy and also missile defense. So Rebecca, some people wonder why we need nuclear weapons when, as they argue, large conventional bombs or other types of weapons can achieve the same goals and objectives. So why do you think we need nuclear weapons? It's hard. It's a hard thing to know the exact effect that conventional will have versus nuclear because, again, so much of this is psychology. So uh, many folks who, who advocate for, for just replacing nuclear weapons with conventional weapons say that so many of our conventional weapons can do what nuclear weapons can do. So why would we use a nuclear weapon? Let's use a conventional weapon. Um, the problem with that, of course, again, is the psychological. There's multiple problems, but one of them is that it, it, it doesn't carry with it the same psychological impact nuclear weapon. For the same reason that our arms control people want to get rid of nuclear weapons, it's the same reason that our adversaries fear them and they're terrible weapons. That's the reason. Uh, that's the first point. Second point is uh, nuclear weapons simply, uh, they are more powerful than conventional weapons. And so, again, going back to those deeply buried hardened targets, if we're going to respond by ensuring that the Russians can't possibly strike again, we need to take out what they value most, and that's their nuclear facilities, and those are in very deeply buried hardened targets. And we just simply don't know for sure if our conventional weapons can get to some of those. And so nuclear weapons is the way we would go. And the third thing is our allies want the United States to respond in their defense. The, the allies who are under the nuclear umbrella, think of Japan, you think of um, South Korea, um, you think of some of our other um, Eastern European, Western European uh, allies, they want that they, they, many of them have uh, sworn off their own nuclear capabilities, or they just they sort of embrace just the NATO, the NATO nuclear umbrella, nuclear alliance. Um, and it's based on this idea of this, this insistence that they won't get their own as long as they have assurance from the United States of America that we will provide them nuclear protection. And so conventional weapons just won't be enough. You see this especially coming out of uh, the Japanese. Some of the Japanese officials, when they talk about nuclear weapons, you know, they say that the best thing that, that, that would assure them is, is a, a very clear statement from the United States that should Japan be attacked with a nuclear weapon from, for instance, China or North Korea, um, uh, that, that the United States would respond with 10. <laughs> and, you know, um, that's the kind of nuclear assurances that the Japanese want. And if the United States just says, forget it, we're not doing nuclear anymore, we're just going to do conventional, I think what we will see is this, the un, unintended consequence of a, a temptation for a nuclear cascade. You'll see other countries who don't have nuclear weapons, who rely on the um, nuclear umbrella, they'll go and get their own nuclear weapons. And that's what we've seen the South Koreans. The South Korean population, um, there was recently a poll taken in which they're very favorable for, the, for South Korea to get their own nuclear weapons and not just rely on the umbrella. One of the things I you know, liked about your article was it kind of helped me see how... Uh, 
just looking at the sheer number of the missiles or the sheer number um, wasn't enough that you also had to look at the the makeup of what's on those missiles and what do we have in our arsenal. The other point on that too, that's a great, it's a great question too, because for instance, in Europe, we would need more shorter range missiles, but less long range ones because we're closer to Russia. Um, but the Russians um, have maintained a 10 to one advantage over the United States when it comes to what we call tactical nuclear weapons, short range nuclear weapons. And this is, this is a huge, uh, strategic advantage of the Russians, the Obama administration um, set out to try to rein in Russia's short-range nuclear weapons whenever it negotiated the New START Treaty. The Russians said, no way. And why would it? It's that, that, that's sort of their bread and butter of their, on their nuclear force, and it's not, it's not in their interest to get rid of their tactical nuclear weapons. And so the Obama administration just sort of walked away from that. They just said, okay, the Russians don't want to do it, let's sort of move forward. Um, and, and so it's not included um, in the New START deal. So there, 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 there are definitely some improvements we could make, um, and, I, and I don't have the technical um, expertise right off the top of my head without my notes to know exactly what else we would need, but there, there, there can be improvements made about what the United States can and should deploy and, and certain closer to, to the Russian Federation so that it, it poses a more credible threat than, than what we're currently doing today. And another thing that you argued in your article, kind of tying in this nuclear deterrence into just war theory, is the idea that we are with a MAD, if we use low number of nuclear weapons, I think you said some people are advocating for as little as 100? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's some people that just argue that, all. why do we need so many? They look at just the numbers. If you don't understand deterrence, you just look at the numbers and say, why in the world does the United States do 3,000 nuclear warheads? That's just so many. Mm-hmm. Um, but... A couple different things. One, if in the event that we actually do have a nuclear uh, exchange, many of our delivery systems would just be taken out on a first strike. And so we're automatically down um, a, a large number of, of delivery systems, and um, depending on what they hit and where they hit it, um, and, and the warheads. And so you have to have you have to have enough there to to respond in the event that you're you're taken out in, in a first strike. Um, two, we need to we need because we don't test. The United States doesn't even test our nuclear warheads anymore. That was George H. W. Bush's um, imposition on the United States. We don't we don't do that. So it's, it's a unilateral self self um, restraining mechanism that we have there. Um, because of that, we need to have enough we need to have enough warheads to to ensure that that the ones that we've got enough that work and that are um, you know we we still go through sort of a modernizing system. But, but we don't test like other countries do, and so we need to make sure that, that we have enough there. And then the other thing, too, is, yes, we have to have an, enough to have an option, flexible option to know which ones are the best ones to use to target military facilities. And then the other thing that we have to be sure that we, we have enough of is in the event that there are alliances. People forget we have a multipolar world now. This is not a bipolar nuclear world. That we, that we had during the height of the Cold War, where you just had two superpowers with nuclear weapons. You have um, pointed at each other. We have many different um, nuclear powers now, and if you keep an eye on the alliance developing between the Chinese and the Russians. And so the United States really has to, has to plan and think about all of this as it devises um, an appropriate nuclear force. And so going down to 100 would be incredibly restrictive, incredibly dangerous. Um, 
and would really limit, tie the hands of subsequent presidents after after any administration that would decide to go down to levels that low. Mm -hmm. But it is interesting that this that the Obama administration, so committed to Global Zero, didn't do that. And there's a reason for that. And that's because it just simply was too dangerous. Um, and it and, and those who were in the position to make those decisions were, were convinced of that, that it was simply too dangerous and an unwise thing to do. And so it's my hope that that continues to be the consensus of, of Republicans and Democrats in years to come, and that we once again get to the point where we're investing the intellectual capital once again in deterrence and, and trying to, to ensure that we don't have these, um, these mass wars and that we actually develop a force to, to win those wars in the event that we have them. Right. And uh, to kind of move to your more recent report out of Hudson about missile defense, and because you wrote in your Providence print edition article about how, was it Henry Kissinger who said that we basically give nuclear missiles a free ride to their intended targets, and mm -hmm. that is morally unacceptable? The idea here is that part of mutually assured destruction is our cities are vulnerable and they're, they're mutually vulnerable, and that the idea would be that that's stabilizing between the two countries because then both countries could just point, point their weapons at those cities, and, and neither one would defend against them, and that would keep everybody in check. Um, again, I've argued that's immoral. So not only should the United States have a robust nuclear arsenal, we should also have a robust, of course, conventional arsenal as well, so, you know, a mix of nuclear and conventional, but also defensive weapons, missile defense. We should make sure that we are not intentionally allowing our cities to be exposed to Russian or Chinese or Korean, Iranian nuclear ballistic missiles. And, and this is the other piece. So we talked about how in the 90s we started moving, we moved away from counter value to a counter, uh, a counter force targeting strategy, which is to target, you know, uh, military facilities. But we, and then, and then President, uh, uh Bush in 2002 withdrew the United States from the anti-ballistic missile treaty that we had that we signed um, during the Cold War so that the United States could now build a defensive system and so we've begun to do that so we have a very limited missile defense system it can protect the US homeland against incoming missiles um, that, that, that North Korea could throw at us or that Iran could throw at us more less sophisticated ballistic missiles what it cannot do is defend against the massive arsenals and sophisticated missiles of the Chinese and the Russians. It's intentionally designed not to do that because we still haven't totally gotten away from this um, this mindset that it's stabilizing to be vulnerable to, to near-peer competitors' offensive missiles. And so what I've argued in this report for Hudson Institute is that it just simply doesn't make sense to do that anymore, that the United States has the technical capability, we do have the resources, it's not, it's not cost prohibitive, like many on the left say that it is. It's going to cost um, a little less than $2 billion annually over uh, 20 years of life cycle of, an, of a very small initial constellation of space-based interceptors that will uh, expand the ability of our current missile defense system to give us additional protection against the increasingly hard-to-catch threats coming out of North Korea and Iran, and also some capability against the Chinese and the Russians, especially because they're, they're developing missiles now that can target our space assets. So that would blind us. 
we, we wouldn't be able to fight wars without our space assets. It would stop our banking system if our space assets were hit. It would, um, it would completely and utterly blind and disrupt the U.S. society. We need to have a system that can, that can defend against that. And so what I've argued in this report, you can find it at the Hudson Institute's website. I had a senior review group, including two NORTHCOM commanders, um, a couple of the three retired three-star generals, um, a couple uh, former diplomats, a senator, uh, the former administrator of NASA. They all agreed that this was right, the right course for the United States to take that we have to expand our missile defense system, that we can no longer remain intentionally vulnerable to the types of missiles that the Chinese and the Russians can, can threaten us with. And, oh, by the way, we all know that the, that the North Koreans are still working on their system, so their, their missiles are becoming increasingly harder to detect. Once you make them mobile, you can roll them into a forest before you launch them. It's very difficult for the United States to be able to prepare to defend against that. And so we really need to have the most robust defensive system that we can in place. But should they surprise us, we will be ready to knock it out of the sky uh, before it lands on its intended target. Yeah. And I think one of the things you said in the report also is that if we have the space uh, system, we can knock them out while they're still over enemy territory instead of you know, over friendly territory. So my last question for you is, as a Christian, how does your faith play into your work, and what advice would you have for Christians who are interested in working in government and or the military or think tanks or in D.C. or anything along those lines? When I think about that question or people ask me that, the first thing that I think about is that I'm not a military analyst apart from being a mother, apart from being an American, apart from being a Christian. Many people today, they compartmentalize everything. There, there are various ways in which they identify with different groups or different parts of them. It's not a consistent way to live. It's not a healthy way to think about yourself. And, and I believe it's just inconsistent with Christianity. I'm a Christian, period, first and foremost. And, and then I have all these other things in which my Christianity plays itself out. I'm called to bring glory to God. That is the purpose of my life. And I can do that in various capacities. We all do. We've got different, in the military, they say wearing different hats. You know, I'm a mother, I'm a wife, I'm a friend, I'm a sister, etc. And I, and I do defense policy, and, I, and I'm an American. I have all these things that I do. But in everything I do, I'm required to, and in fact, I want to, because of my Christian faith, um, bring honor and glory to God. And so um, when I think about that, I can't just turn off my, my Christian thoughts about what God would have me do as I think through what is good for the United States of America. I believe that God has been very gracious to this country. We have, we have the freest country the world has ever seen. We are able to worship freely in a way that, that no other country has been able to do that. Um, we, we have equal protection under the law. It's what we strive for. It's imperfect, but that's what our Constitution requires. And so I would like to see our country um, last as long as, as we're given the grace to do it. And so um, I take that very, very seriously. Um, the gospel can spread much better. Um, of course, God can do anything. But if, if Christians can worship freely here and then go out and, you know, from here as a launching pad and go out and, and, and go to the nations and do the same thing, then the best way that that can happen is if the United States uh, protects itself, protects its own interests, strives for justice, uh, governments are required to commend what is good and punish evil. And so I take that very, very seriously. 
And so I, I take that seriously in my work, and I, I'm constantly trying to challenge myself to make sure that I'm not advocating for a policy that would increase the likelihood of war, that would increase the spilling of innocent blood, that would in any way be unjust and contrary to, to natural law or to, to God-given law. And then in terms of just sort of everyday living, you know, working, working, um, you know, I, I hope to be living my life as a Christian. And when I talk to my coworkers, when I go on TV, and I, I sort of advocate for the things I believe are right. When I write in my op-eds, um, you know, everything that I write, I hope that I am writing in a way that, again, is honorable and good. That I'm not taking cheap shots at people, that I don't characterize my opponents in a way that's unfair. God is truth, and so the stronger arguments should, should win the day at the end. And so I'm just constantly trying to make sure that my arguments are the strongest, that I'm not taking cheap shots you know, that I'm being fair to, to those who disagree with me. And in the end, I'm confident that God's will will be done. And so I don't have to be anxious about the, the work that I do in the meantime. But yeah, it's important you're not sort of forgetting your own Christian identity as you as you live and work in your professional life. Well, that answers your question. I think I think it does. And that, that's something that, you know, being a Christian publication, I think that when we do these podcasts, I'm going to try to ask all of our participants that question to kind of yeah, I hope that our listeners, if they're, you know, envisioning university professors or college students who are thinking about what they're going to do with their life, like how their faith interplays with it. And for me personally, I definitely uh, a lot relate a lot to what you've said. And like currently I work at a religious organization, but in the past that's been in very non-religious organizations. And so that can be a difficult a trial for a lot of Christians and in my church small group we talk about that a lot and so I hope that you know sharing these stories will help our listeners and well, and not only, if I could add one more thing too you know if you don't I my pastor says I thought this was just a great thing to say but he says don't just and I'm paraphrasing him he says don't just vote for or support politically religious freedom he goes exercise your religious freedom and, and what he means, of course, is what is the point of, of wanting religious freedom only to go into your church and, and sing and pray, and you should do that, and I, I cherish that we're able to do that freely when other people across the globe can't. But religious freedom also means to just live your life as a Christian in the workplace, in your home, on the streets, in the grocery store, in every aspect of your life. And so you have to exercise those muscles. You have to do it. That's one of the best ways to assure that we sort of hold back the secular leftist inclination to close and be more hostile to religious freedom, religious expression. So you got to exercise those muscles. And I have found that people respect that. Even my, my non-Christian friends or those who disagree with me on various theological points, they, they respect that. You stand firm in your faith and you've got a reason for why you think the way you do. Uh, there's nothing to fear there. Right. I know that there's so much more that we could talk about. In fact, I think I have six or seven pages of questions that I knew we weren't <laughs> going to get to. But I will uh, post links on the uh, website to the Hudson report. And also, I think y'all have a, had a video from the event that I was able to attend. And maybe another time I can ask you some of these questions about the uh, missile defense system. But sure. yes, well, thank you very much for participating. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.